Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. We are not allowing any black people to enter inside the gates. Are black immigrants being held hostage in Ukraine while white citizens are allowed to flee? We go inside the Afro-Ukrainian border crisis. Jaja told me flip them packs and how to maintain. Then, drill music is under siege as lawmakers blame it for hip-hop's homicide epidemic. Displaying of guns, violence. But can the lyrics be taken literally? And should drill rappers be held accountable for the rising murder rate? Plus, scams and situationships. Who's going off about online dating shenanigans? How some hookup apps have turned the game of love into a con job. It's like Monopoly. I gotta figure out how to get around the board. And it's Will Smith versus Denzel Washington part two, as King Richard takes on Macbeth in the race to the Oscars. Plus, the amazing Ariana and Anjanou Ellis go for the gold. My hope is, is that we look back on what happened with Trayvon. And remembering Trayvon Martin 10 years after his tragic murder, how the culture continues to fight for justice in his name. That and much more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Welcome to the show. I'm Naima Abdullahi. We begin with a big international headline that we're following. Just about everyone has seen the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but all the stories have been told through the lens of white Ukrainians until black Twitter went off. We are not allowing any black people to enter inside this. This video went viral of mostly African college students being denied entry to trains and buses to escape the violence of war. And we saw the reaction from African countries, Zimbabwe, Ghana, Kenya, Somalia, Morocco, all of them doing whatever it takes necessary to make sure all Africans safely evacuate Ukraine. We also saw how this ended up being a discussion about a humanitarian crisis and then ended up being a conversation about race something that impacts the international community as well. And it brings one other thing to our attention. Racism can be experienced anywhere. As we take all of this in, we want you to be part of this discussion. Share your thoughts across our social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, and on our YouTube channel. Send me the Addy, I'm hunting down. Send me the Addy, I'm hunting down. 
Now to drill music under fire. Beats of drill music have become an anthem, particularly in the Big Apple. The hard-hitting sounds in the lyrics about gang life have extended beyond our borders and impacted the world. Yet, this genre of music is being scrutinized here in the States as critics are connecting it to the murders of young rappers. So what's behind the drill dilemma? We've had a number of shootings in Brooklyn recently that are directly related to drill um, rap videos. He was a drill rapper, part of a scene which involved using music as a challenge on social media posts. It's a dilemma that has politicians pointing the finger. Violent. People who are using drill rapping to post who they killed and then antagonize the people who they are going to kill. And the New York Police Department glued to social media. They're shooting live, so Facebook Live, Instagram Live, from a location. They're, they're rapping and they're um, taunting their rivals in in their rivals gang territory. Drill music blamed for fueling the latest surge of gun violence. 22 year old Tajay Dobson was killed Tuesday in Canarsie. It happened hours after he signed a contract with million dollar music. In less than a week, two young drill rappers were murdered in Brooklyn. The shooting deaths of two aspiring drill rappers in Brooklyn sparked the debate after a press conference by New York City Mayor Eric Adams. And that's what has some people worried about drill rap. He is blaming the rap music, the drill rap music, for spikes in violent crime. You can't stop drill rap, that's silly. Kenneth Montgomery is a criminal defense attorney representing hip hop musicians since the 1990s and recently Bobby Shmurda. I'll be very honest, trying cases now, and I've been trying cases since 1997, the landscape of trying changes have changed dramatically. The technology has pretty much outpaced the rule of law. PBS like 25-year-old Aaron Williams went by the name Supergates. His family says social media plays a huge part in this tragic trend. If they want to put a sanction on anything, put a sanction on Instagram, put a sanction on Facebook, put a sanction on all of those things. Raquel Peters is demanding answers, but says banning the music isn't one of them. They're missing the point. The point is not to ban drill. The point is to get the, the guns off of the street. There is a long history connecting gun violence with gang rivalries with hip hop. But how did we get here? I stopped breathing. Damn, I see demons. By 2012, Chicago drill music emerged into the mainstream with then 16-year-old Chief Keef's hit song. Journalist Mark Ellibert is a Brooklyn native, all too familiar with facing the music. These politicians are looking at that, and instead of looking at what they should be doing, they're going to point the finger at the kids. Mayor Adams, who initially condemned the subgenre, held a roundtable discussion with local New York rappers. It's been a lot of talk about drill rap. Even with the mayor planning an initiative to bridge the gap, is that really the answer? That is not drill music's fault. That's the fault of this city, the fault of these lawmakers. You can look good for the cameras, you can do all of that, but what are we really doing? 
Here to join us for a deeper dive into the drill dilemma are Tyrone Dennis, former police officer for the city of Atlanta and hip hop ambassador of Brooklyn, Mayno. Before we dive into this conversation, let's take a moment to express our condolences to the families of Jaquan McKinley, 18 years old, went by She Watts, and Tajay Dobson, 22 years old, went by T.Wu. Mayno, you were there when the mayor was addressing the city of New York. He said in his speech, there are a lot of Jaquans. When you heard him say that, how did you reflect on that? I mean, there are a lot of Jaquans. We've been having that story um, since the beginning of time. We, we live in a country that produces violence. We have cities that are underfunded, um, you know, poverty stricken, you know, that that's going to always produce the element of crime. So, you know, those those horrific, heartbreaking stories like Jaquan, unfortunately, we've been hearing forever. In his heartfelt address, when he was first talking about the subgenre, where did you stand on that correlation that's being made on what it reflects and how it really impacts the environment? Well, I stood on it because I felt like the statement might have been taken um, as like a blanket statement. You know, you know, it felt like there was a, you know, it was something being said that he wanted to ban drill music. Um, first and foremost, what I wanted to do was first establish to him what drill music really was. And the only way for me to actually do that was to actually set up a meeting with not only myself, because it was bigger than, than me, it's not me, but actually bring premier drill artists there. Fabio, B-Love, these are premier dr drill artists in the city. So you can't have a conversation about drill music in the culture without speaking directly to the, the actual artists, because if the wrong people are speaking and you have the wrong narrative, then you're gonna have the wrong solutions. Should artists' music be used against them in the court of law? Here's the issue with lyrics. The lyrics is a manifestation of a lifestyle. The problem is that a lot of these kids are already in gangs before they even rapping. So if your lifestyle is gangbanging already, if you're 14 years old and your lifestyle is already broken, when you start to rap, the rap is going to be an extension of the life that you already involved in. So this is the real problem for me. Drill music is a sound. It's not an action. The deeper problem is that we have a country that produces criminality. As long as there's a ghetto, as long as there's an inner city, as long as there's underfunded areas, we're always going to produce criminals, gangs, uh, crime. That's always going to be. And how does social media play into that? Social media is the devil. Back in the day, you used to meet up in the skate ring. Now the kids can go on social media and talk and go back and forth and diss each other and so forth and so on for miles away from each other, which right. leads to then they can also show what I pack and show what I got with the Draco and all this different other stuff. And so now I can't let that ride. I got to retaliate. I got to get it back in blood. And then I'm going to do something to y'all. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, and it keeps going and going and going. Have there been situations where lyrics in cases that you've investigated have been used against an artist and it, it led to a prosecution? Yes. You pretty much name a rap incident in Atlanta, I had something to do with it. And of course, rap lyrics came into play. 
uh, the beef between YFN, Lucci, and Young Thug. Uh, Lil Dark and King Von, they had an incident in Atlanta, and their lyrics all played a part in their investigation and their case. Um, you know, when we really look at gangster rap, when we look at trap music, when we look at drill music, how much of this issue is specific to a drill music dilemma, or is there a bigger picture conversation that we should be having? It's socioeconomic also. I work in a suburban school district, and my the kids I coach, they listen to rap music as well, but they listen to it as entertainment. Some of our inner city children listen to it as a way of life. I think back to N.W.A. When I was growing up, N.W.A., that was it. Like, oh my God, they gonna ban them in two live crew. I grew up listening to that music, but I also had a mom that described to me, do you know what comes with that? But I had an outlet through sports and through after-school programs that some of these kids don't have. I told the mayor that if the plan and the solution is to just lock up all the gangbangers in the city... Can't do that right, either. That's not going to change the fact that we're going to have new ones on the way. Let me bring up some statistics as you're talking about the conditions that they're growing up in. Major crime in New York City is up 38% from January 2021 to January 2022, according to NYPD. Chicago's another hot topic because of the drill music scene. In 2021, Chicago had the deadliest year in a quarter century, according to Chicago police. As a police officer, when you're hearing that, what's your reflection? If you don't give young people something to do or something to strive for, they're going to resort back to what they know. You can't arrest your way out the problem because if we arrest all the young men, it's going to be more fatherless young men raising themselves. We can't continue to police. We can't continue to live like it's the 80s and the 90s. It's 2022. Before you you you, you have the conversation about the music, we got to have a conversation about this country in a real way. It's just as simple as the opportunities that, that are not afforded to to our young black kids that they actually really have not much to do. Mayno and Tyrone, thank you for both chiming in on this. And I don't even mind you saying we hard on these kids. You know why? Because we are. That's our job, to keep them off these streets. Will Smith on the road to award glory. He scored Best Actor at the NAACP Image Awards. We're a little over three weeks away from the Oscars where Will and Denzel Washington will face off once again in the Best Leading Actor category. Joining me right now is Kennedy Rue McCullough to break down that matchup and some other standout black performances. Yes, Naima. Like Issa Rae said, I'm rooting for everybody black, and that includes Will and Denzel. But can it be a tie? Back in 2002, it was Ali and Training Day, and Denzel's evil twin Alonzo took the trophy. But this year's black excellence includes some black girl magic with some leading ladies potentially getting their flowers on Oscar night, too. Ingenue Ellis in King Richard. Can we talk Anjanue Ellis, who co-stars alongside Will Smith in King Richard? She is so good, as are the ladies who play the Williams sisters. But Anjanue, she's walking into her glory as an Oscar nominee. And right alongside Lady Ellis is Ariana DeBose, whose performance in West Side Story scored an actor at the SAG Awards and is also Oscar nominated. They are the two black females in the acting categories, bringing a little flavor to the Academy. Yes. Yes. On the men's front, Will scored an actor at the SAG Awards. 
He and Denzel were up against each other and will face one another again at the March 27th Oscar ceremony in Los Angeles. Will's accolades come from his stint playing Richard Williams, Serena and Venus's father. Denzel, of course, delivered and brought flavor to Shakespeare in the tragedy of Macbeth, opposite Francis McDormand. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. All right, let's switch things up a bit and turn to some comedy, thanks to SNL fixture Kenan Thompson, who popped into his hometown of Atlanta to scour for some funny talent for the 11th season of his ultimate comedy experience. What made you want to look for talent here in this city? It's just nice that I was able to like do one of the Atlanta shows, because we've been doing this for years. Like We're really looking for talent, and we're really trying to give people a chance. And Keenan is on a roll with the Peacock Network as he's in season three of his scripted comedy hit. Meanwhile, as we count down to the Oscars, Naima, who do you got in the Will and Denzel showdown? Kennedy, this is the toughest question of the night. So this would be Denzel's third win, Will's first win. So yep. I see where you're going with it. But I'm a root for all of them at the same time. <laughs> I love it. Very diplomatic. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll be right back. I'm sorry, Mr. Wright, but uh, you tested positive for HIV. What, what? A normal T-cell count is anywhere between 500 and 1,500. Right now, your T-cell count is 14. But I ain't no f That is the crushing news delivered to Eazy-E, played by Jason Mitchell in 2015's Oscar-nominated Straight Out of Compton. Welcome back. I don't even feel that bad, Doc. Don't tell me that. That news rocked the culture, and today, black Americans are still being disproportionately affected by HIV and AIDS. The Center of Disease Control reports that black people account for 13% of the U.S. population, but have the largest share of HIV diagnosis. So what's behind the spike? Here to hash it all out, Black AIDS Institute Chair, Ms. Griselle R. Howard, Senior Advisor for Chief Medical Office, Cedric Polium, and sexual health expert, Dr. David Malbranch. Welcome to the show. Let's specifically talk about some data. These numbers are continuing to increase. Why do you think it's continuing to spread between our communities? I think some of the factors weighing heavily really looks into, you know, thinking of social determinants of health, right? We think of just pure access to healthcare, location, how long it takes distance-wise. The communities that we see black people residing in are food scarce. They, they don't have like nutritious food options. Just thinking about accessing healthcare, getting an HIV test, an STI test, going to see a, a provider at a clinic or a hospital, those are things beyond them just trying to live their life every single day. One of the things we've learned from COVID um, in a kind of accelerated fashion is that these things don't happen overnight. And when you drop a virus into social inequities that have gone on for decades and centuries, it just explodes. COVID is what I say uh, with having such a esteemed panel, especially uh, Dr. Melbranch. COVID has actually been very, very good to us in a way. Why? COVID, if we allow it, is HIV for the planet. However, we haven't stigmatized COVID yet. Wow. HIV is still stigmatized. So even before we get to the social determinants of health, for the majority of the community, HIV will become a chronic disease as diabetes, hypertension, and others. However, in our community, we haven't received the right messaging. So if you look at a lot of the studies, you'll probably see only about a third of people 
like 33% report using condoms consistently. And if you tell me you don't use condoms, my job isn't to be the condom police and then just suddenly judge you and stigmatize you, say, you know, you need to wear a condom. I say, okay, so you don't use condoms. So tell me a little bit about your STI, your sexually transmitted infection practices. Tell me a little bit about how, um, how often you get HIV tested. And then also tell me what else you're doing to prevent HIV since you don't like condoms or you can't use condoms. You know, there's the stigma of HIV. There's also the stigma of being black in America. When those two overlap, you know, what are we really dealing with that we need to really address as a community? There's sex stigma, right? So when people are stigmatized, for not fitting in those neat boxes that are considered the norm, that's where it starts and can kind of lead down a path with HIV. Church communities, faith-based organizations, have some have been a part of the you know epidemic and the work from the beginning 40 years ago, but some are still completely discriminatory regarding doing HIV talks or being involved and involving our congregations because we know how significantly important not only education, but faith and church lies within the black community. Right. As we break down the stigmas, let's also break down the myths that have been there generation to generation. I mean, a lot of people still think that you can get it from mosquitoes, you can get it from kissing, um, you can get it from saliva. If you sit on toilet seats, share the same utensils, use the same plates. One of the myths is that it's just a gay thing. So one of the things that I comment here from a lot of heterosexual women when we talk about pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, they say, oh, isn't that that gay drug? that you use to prevent HIV, and they don't think that they're candidates for it. And I've actually had patients that I've seen before that could have taken PrEP, mm. but didn't because they thought it was for gay men. Mm. However, there are persons who know they engage in certain activities. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's that they are candidates for PrEP. But the black women see the commercials on TV and they think they don't even know what the commercial is. I sit with my grandparents and educate them because they are single and could be sexually active just like the 10, that's 15, a, 20 year old. It, that's a myth The, in the and myth itself. is that older people right. are not having sex, so they don't need this education. The providers don't think that it's necessary. Elders are getting it yes. in, so we have Elders to make sure that just because someone is of a certain age that we don't ask the sexual history questions. Yes. Absolutely, our elders are getting it in. And then, and there are beautiful, super octogenarians who report that they're still sexually active. And so it is so important to remind them at least of the condom component. So when we talk about myths, that condoms are the only form of safer sex. Right. Um, and I think that's right. a larger that's conversation is that we don't talk about sex in the way it's typically used by most people, which is for pleasure. People don't have sex Correct. solely to procreate. People have sex because it feels good. People in our communities and communities at large believe HIV no longer exists. Like we handled that, right? Like when we put out the trash, it's gone. And to submit to you this, long before we get to the school, we have the kitchen table. We have gathering of family. And some of us who didn't have family always have someone in community. And it's usually a woman that they can rely upon or taught them something. It is not a death sentence. What is the biggest takeaway, someone watching right now, this generation, um, that they should take away from this conversation? Get your freak on, but get checked. How about okay. that?
Short and simple. What Short about and you? simple. I would say, you know, have the conversations amongst your circle, your friends and your family. Don't be afraid to talk about sex. Don't be afraid to talk about HIV. Let's start breaking the, the mold now. It starts one with loving yourself. And if you don't love yourself, hug yourself every morning and say, I love my beautiful black self. Amen. Two, Amen. get it how you want, when you want, as long as you want, safely. And there are ways to do that. And then three, we need everyone in America to understand that we must decriminalize HIV. Mm. Yeah. HIV is not a crime. Miss Grizel David Cedric, thank you for this informative conversation. When we come back, we're diving into the Tinder swindler syndrome and why dating app users are falling for romance scams. That's up next. He has threats against him. He needs our cash. $20,000, $30,000. $140,000. His life depended on me. That's when police tell me the man I love was never real. Everything's a lie. This is some of the Netflix documentary Tinder Swindler about dating apps going horribly bad at the hands of quote unquote swindlers. The pandemic in part has increased the number of dating app users, which in turn has led to a spike in romance scams. So we asked the question about finding love at the risk of being hoodwinked and bamboozled. And here to hash it all out, Atlanta's very own hip hop artist, Young Jock, along with radio host Kodak and media personality, Jojo Alonzo. Before we get to this discussion, let me give you some data. Romance scams reached a record high in 2021, increasing by nearly 80% from 2020, according to a report from the Federal Trade Commission. In the past five years, victims have lost more than 1.3 billion in such scams. When you hear that figure, Jock, <laughs> love Doc Jock, when you hear 1.3 billion romance scams, what come to your mind? What comes to my mind? Uh -huh. That a lot of people are looking for love uh -huh. in all the wrong places. Uh -huh. That's what comes to my mind. What comes to my mind is people are willing to barter finances for compatibility. Kodak. Yeah, like we were saying on our show before, like sometimes the red flags look like six flags because Woo! you'll be so enamored with the idea of what somebody is mm. and not see who they really are. You know, a lot of people in Atlanta aren't dating for love. They're dating for survival. So if they want What's to... What's the difference between the two? If, what do you if, mean by that? Like if you are, when you're dating for love, you're looking for somebody in, in terms of compatibility. compatibility like we mesh well together, we have similar goals, similar interests, we're good together, we can work together. You're gonna throw that all, all that doesn't matter. Are you gonna take care of me? That's, that's really what a lot of the, the, the situations like this go on in Atlanta. Jojo, do you have any personal stories you wanna share with us about that specifically? Whew. Yeah, I do, Ashley. I was talking to this guy on social media <laughs> and we was talking for a while. And then he never struck me as the type to be on no BS, okay? Until one day he contacted me on like a, like a business venture. Like, oh, um, I want you to come and host this event and you'll get paid X, Y, and Z. So then um, after that, now he's like, um, do you know anybody else that would, you know, like to host some events? And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I'm in the media industry, of course. Right. He's like, okay, uh, well, there's like a buy-in fee. And I'm like, huh? Hmm. 
what's the buy-in fee? You talking about some 15 bands. And I started thinking, I'm like, yo, this don't feel right. This don't feel right. Jock, when you're hearing this, right, earlier you talked about the red flags. What can make someone put their guard down and be trusting of the process? One thing about a, a, a swindler, mm -hmm. they will listen more than they speak. Mm -hmm. So if I don't say anything and I listen to her, she'll give me the blueprint on how to get in. Mm -hmm. Most con men work that way. They'll let you talk, talk, talk. Mm -hmm. And as you're giving them your struggles, your, your strengths, your weaknesses, they begin to formulate who they're going to be to you, how they're going to present themselves to you. Mm -hmm. That happened, and we're saying this, I can almost finish your sentences. Then she walks away like, wow, he could finish my sentences. Like, I've never had somebody so in touch with me because you've given him this whole layout of your makeup when it comes to your, your mental scape. So statistics show that men are twice more likely than women to get scammed. Kodak, you got a scam story to tell us? Um, I do have a story about that, and this was the last time I saw her ever again. So I, <laughs> I, I, I went out with this girl. We, we go to this nice restaurant. It's called Red Lobster. You might have heard it before. Five um, star, five star. Yes, it's very elite cuisine. Um, and we go back to her spot, and um, she says, uh, you can't come in because uh, my, my cousin stand with me. Woo -woo -woo. Okay, cool. That happened like two times. Then to kind of find out, it wasn't her cousin. Who was it? Her what? boyfriend. Man. At that point, I knew I had been got. Well, what is the embarrassment that keeps people from sharing their stories, right? Because I'm so glad both of you are able to tell us about your experience. But love Doc Jock. <laughs> what is kind of that ability, inability for people to really come forward and share their stories about this? A lot of people are embarrassed. Mm. Nobody wants to say I'm a sucker. It's, just, it's levels to it. Because, like, I've been, I've been around a chick who got a bag, right? Or a play-play bag, meaning... What's that? She'll say, what you doing today? I want to do something nice for you. Okay. Well, what you want to do? Meet me at Lennox. And then you go right downstairs to the Gucci store and she want to buy you some socks. Mm. So you thinking, I done caught a little, little something. Oh. Yeah. Oh. She not broke. She ain't broke. Yeah. And she buy herself a little something. And she can say, I can see you looking like this on the regular. You like... Yeah. I can't. I can, I can play with this. <laughs> so now I don't have to, it ain't just me spending my money. We can spend our money on each other. So now the next time it happens, guess what? She's spending Well, it's me trying to match what she's done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But because I'm a man and she's looking at me like the bigger bag, you know, big bank, take little bank, yeah. I'm not going to buy her socks. I might come in there and buy her some shoes. I might buy her a bag and a matching belt. How can we kind of prevent this so that people are not victims? of this. I mean, it's 1.3 billion. That's a whole lot of money. Yeah. I, I just feel like people don't need to trust so fast. Get off the medium that, that, that affords you the ability to get got. So meet people in person. Meet people yes. in person. Okay. Even when you meet people in person, that don't mean they can't scam you, True. but it's less likely. See, laws of average say one out of 10 gonna bite, right? Mm. So if I meet only 100 people, that means only maybe 10 people that may match up with me. But when I'm on a medium, an app, a site, yeah. and there are millions of people, yeah. people, think about how many laws are averages, how many one out of tens is gonna come by. From a woman perspective, mm -hmm. what is the biggest red flag women should look out for? Okay, a man basically trying to sell you a dream, your dream, the dream that he knows that, that you're, you're working towards. Like, 
when my situation, you know, the only thing that really get me going is my job, my career, like making money. That's what I do. So that man knew that the only way that he could get me to do anything was to tell me. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It had something to do with me getting some paper. Jojo, I hear you on that. Jock, what is the brightest red flag that people should look out for? When people um, are too, when they seem too quick to patronize what you're doing. And next thing you know, you foster this, this faux relationship that you think is real because this person really looking out for me. So there's so much strategy behind it's, it. It's, it's like Monopoly. Mm -hmm. I gotta figure out how to get around the board. Kodak, Jojo, Young Jock, all of you have chimed in. The strategy behind it, the game behind it, all the cat behind the apps. We appreciate all of you for weighing in on this discussion that impacts so many people. Thank you all for your time. Thank, Thank you. you. You are going to pass the law of the no-knock warrants, ban it, starting here in the Twin Cities, where my son was born and raised. Born and raised, and you took his life. A demand for action from Karen Wells, mother of Amir Locke, at the funeral services for her son held earlier this month. The 22-year-old was shot and killed seconds after officers serving a no-knock warrant encountered Locke asleep in the home of a relative. The incident has refueled outrage in the city of Minneapolis, where recently re-elected Mayor Jacob Fry campaigned on the claim that he would ban the use of no-knock warrants by police. Welcome back. Protests in the Twin Cities demanding answers and accountability in the police killing of Amir Locke. We are not going to let this slide. This is our lives. Yeah, no more of it. We're tired. Authorities' handling of the case have refueled distrust in the city, still reeling from the 2020 killing of George Floyd. That the system was wicked, corrupt, and it was ineffective. Community members like attorney and activist Nakima Levy Armstrong say they're fed up. What the mayor and interim chief had to say about the incident and about the body camera footage. The involved officer was just outside the frame in the direction that that barrel is emerging from the blanket. I just became more and more bothered by what I was hearing. We talked about the importance of transparency and accountability. And here, what we are seeing is business as usual. The body camera footage showed that Amir Locke was not pointing a gun at officers, and Amir did not even get a chance to react. Many blame City Mayor Jacob Fry, whose 2020 ban and 2022 moratorium on no-knock warrants didn't put an end to the procedure. Investigate Mayor Fry. A representative from Fry's office told Revolt Black News that under the current policy, no-knock warrants are only issued where there is a threat of imminent harm and approval by the chief of police. Yesterday, Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar unveiled the Amir Locke and Deadly No-Knock Warrants Act that limit no-knock warrants nationwide and ban quick-knock and nighttime warrants. Protecting the rights of law-abiding citizens like Locke. As a licensed gun owner myself, 
One of the things that I recognized was the amount of self-discipline that Amir Locke had in that moment. He could have put his finger on the trigger. He could have pointed a gun at strangers inside of the apartment where he was sleeping. Instead, he exercised self-discipline. He exercised caution. He kept his gun pointed down and he looked up to try to figure out what was going on. Sadly, officers didn't even give him a chance to figure out what was going on before they opened fire. And here in studio around policing gun safety and the Second Amendment rights of black Americans, joining us we have Marshall Davis, a U.S. Army veteran, certified firearms instructor, and founder of My Sister's Keeper Defense, and filmmaker Tariq Nasheed, author of Foundational Black American Race Baiter, My Journey into Understanding Systemic Racism. Welcome you both to the show. Thank you for having me. I want to get a sense from you. The case of Amir Locke has caused outrage about the double standard of gun ownership for black Americans. One, I think it's a tragic incident. Um, it's an unfortunate event that this young man lost his life. He was responsibly and legally armed, mm -hmm. and he reacted how most armed people would react in that scenario. And to see that video is also heartbreaking. Tariq, what's your response to that as well? Black people who are responsible gun owners don't get the same treatment. Philando Castile faced the same fate. He was a legal gun owner and he was executed. Also out here in the Bay Area, there was a situation where a black woman saw an intruder come to her home. She shot some warning shots and then she was um, apprehended by the police and treated like a criminal. So we have a, a big systematic problem with us black people defending ourselves under this system. Let's stay on the topic of policing and police officers. Departments across the country say the tactics of implicit bias training aren't enough to change the behaviors of police officers. Implicit bias and police training and sensitivity training, that is a major con job that they run on us. These officers do not need to go to the Black History Museum to learn about Harriet Tubman to stop shooting people and killing people. We have card-carrying white supremacists on the police force. These officers have to be punished. When you punish them, when you sentence them, give them life sentences or 25 to life, that will give them the incentive to stop killing Black people with impunity. Marshall, you've been helping people learn different methods of protecting themselves. Was there a specific experience that inspired you to start this journey of training black women in America. It was actually the murder of Philando Castile. Um, in that summer, I marched around Atlanta with the NAACP. And while I was there, I was looking at all of these people marching and chanting and asking, treat us fairly, don't shoot us, hands up, don't shoot. And I was thinking, well, maybe that isn't the chant. Maybe we shouldn't be asking anyone to stop harming us. Maybe we should educate ourselves, make sure that we're legally carrying our firearms and defend ourselves. Self-love and self-defense go hand in hand. As a firearm instructor, my whole goal is to normalize gun ownership, especially black gun ownership, because it is such a taboo topic. And if we break down those stigmas and get rid of those stereotypes that we see in media, then that also helps make Americans, specifically black Americans, understand that gun ownership in the Second Amendment is for you too. And this is part of a larger trend. Looking at the data last year was a big record-breaking year for gun sales. Americans legally purchased more than 20 million guns in 2020, more than any year on record. And those numbers remained relatively unchanged in 2021, largely driven by firearm sales to black Americans, which increased by 
58%. When we talk about the foundation that you started, My Sister's Keeper, and you're working primarily with women of color, what are they telling you about the different reasons why they're buying guns? So the initial reason in the big boom of 2020 was that they understood law enforcement officers are not responding to some of these calls because hmm. of COVID. They were just not going to respond or there will be extremely delayed response times. For the first time, I think black Americans realize that you have to be your own defender, your own protector. Is that something specific to just black Americans? That's specific to all humans, I believe, on this planet. No one is responsible for your safety but you. You are responsible for defending your life. But specifically black Americans in this country, we have to understand that the law is not created equal. So how we're treated, how we're handled, how our calls are responded to is not the same as non-black Americans. Tariq, I see you nodding your head. Now, I partially agree with the sister. Um, right now, we are under attack as black people. Hmm. Other people are getting protection. You can't harm Asian people. There's a federal hate crime bill specifically for Asians. We as black people, we don't have a federal hate crime bill that protects us. And even local law enforcement, are they're not protecting black people. Why do you think that federal protection isn't there? We've been asking our elected officials to put together policies, and we keep getting told that they can't do anything for black people specifically, but they can do things for Asian groups, refugee groups, um, Ukrainians, and everybody else. So this is why black people have to get more politically sophisticated so that we can push our politicians as well as the people who run law enforcement to do the things that we need to protect ourselves. Marshall, I want to ask you this. How do you explain the silence of pro-gun groups like the NRA in cases where black people with legal firearms are killed by police? The reason why they don't speak on some issues and speak on others is, is a racial bias against black gun owners, even legal black gun owners. Um, they did eventually speak on the Philando Castile uh, murder, but it was months after the event had taken place. It, it, they didn't care, basically. Um, so I don't look to non-black owned gun organizations to represent me anymore or seek help from them. I created the National Black Self-Defense Directory. It is a directory, the first and only of its kind, that helps black Americans find other black firearm instructors across the country. There are black firearm instructors, black gun ranges, black FFLs, which is people who are allowed to sell firearms. You can find black resources so that you're not discriminated against from non-black firearm related resources. Tariq and Marshall, thank you so much for breaking this down and adding so much context to it. We appreciate Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Appreciate your time. Coming up, we remember Trayvon Martin 10 years after his death and how it sparked a movement that spread throughout the country. That's ahead. My hope is, is that we look back on what happened with Trayvon and are able to say that that was the start of America looking inward.
That is former President Barack Obama on the Trayvon Martin tragedy. Welcome back. As we mark the 10th anniversary of the shooting death of then unarmed 17-year-old Trayvon, his murder was also a turning point in the early start of the Black Lives Matter movement, a moment that affected everyone, particularly black America. terrible and it's sad that this kid had to go so young, but he was like the martyr for change. The contemporary civil rights movement unfolded directly in response to the murder of Trayvon Martin. One of the most important things maybe that came out of this tragedy was the activation of an entire new generation of civil rights leaders. It's a painful subject. Uh, it's one that it divides us, but we've got to have the strength. We've got to have the courage to, uh, to talk about things racial if we want to make uh, racial progress. We got to see past what's in front of us. We can't give up. As a man, as a father, as a son, it has affected my life and the way I see life in so many different ways. And I pray, I pray that change comes soon. A life gone way too soon, but he's leaving an impact even after his untimely death. Yes, and a very unnecessary death. God bless his mom and family. And before we wrap, we want to acknowledge someone else who's dealing with tragedy in the most exemplary fashion, the beautiful and wise Lauren London. This week, her words of wisdom went viral, and the way she encouraged all of us to keep our heads up no matter what makes her our revolutionary of the week. Check her out. When you have this plan for your life, as you should, if or when that gets derailed and you have plan B now to go off that you didn't plan on, it is the ultimate test of surrender. Because at the end of the day, as much control as we think we have, we do not. And it's actually very powerful to surrender. We think that it's a weakness, but it's so much power in letting go and flowing with the river. Because life is gonna do what it's gonna do. And we are all gonna get chin checked by life one way or another. So I might as well focus on my enlightenment and roll with the river and not fight with the rocks. Bless you, Lauren. RIP Nip, the marathon continues. All right, don't forget to subscribe to the Revolt Black News YouTube channel and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Snap for the latest. Thank you all for joining us. That does it for us. See you next time. Later. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.